The metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform, attracting online game makers, social networks, and plenty of investment. And sure, there's lots of hype surrounding the metaverse, but there's also lots of substance, development, and exciting trends. On this podcast series, Into the Metaverse, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, we will break down the biggest developments and bring on the most interesting minds who are building, investing in, and experiencing the metaverse. Welcome to the latest edition of Into the Metaverse, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm Matthew Canterman. I'm a senior equity research analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, and my co-host is Yonatan Ross Fridman, the CEO and co-founder of SuperSocial, a company making games and experiences for the metaverse, starting with Roblox. We're super excited to, to be recording today with a really interesting guest. You know, for me, Yon, you know, obviously I come from the financial industry. My view on on looking at the metaverse is, you know, and at the end of the day, it's, yeah, I, I love it as a consumer, but I'm interested in it as an analyst as well from the financial side. And, you know, we're, we're, we're really excited to bring in Mario Stefanidis. He's a vice president of research from, from Roundhill Investments. They have a super, uh, you know, super successful, really, right out of the gate ETF tracking the metaverse. You know, he's been playing Roblox for years so he'll be a great guest to kind of give us the user experience, but also the market experience. Welcome, Mario. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me on. It's great to speak to both of you again. So I, I know we did a webinar a couple, you know, probably almost a year ago now, you know, looking at, you know, Roblox and the opportunity in the metaverse. And I, I think one of the things that Yon and I have liked to talk a lot about with the guests we've brought on the podcast is, you know, this this really important question that I, I've said it a ton. It, it sounds simple, but it's it's quite important, you know, to you and and you work with Matt Ball and in, in creating the fun that you guys have that's super successful. That's the the Ball Roundhill. Uh, I'm gonna butcher the name, but you can correct me. The Ball Roundhill Metaverse ETF. Uh, it's the Meta ticker. You guys have done a lot of work in defining what the metaverse is. But if you could kind of just you know give us your analysis and and your overview of how you guys define the metaverse in constructing your 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 portfolio. And then I think most importantly is is also what is not the metaverse? Because I think that's a really important point to make as well. Sure. So two, two great questions to get us started. I think in the simplest terms, the metaverse is going to be the successor to the current internet. And it's going to be an interoperable, interoperable synchronous, persistent series of virtual spaces that bridge both the digital and physical worlds and you know, the metaverse right now is way beyond our current reach due to technological limitations, but uh, there are companies, particularly gaming companies, who have created experiences within music, gaming, sporting events that are going to define that kind of outer layer uh, of the metaverse. And then, you know, just going a little bit deeper, there's also an infrastructure layer, a technology layer, a networking layer that needs to be built first for those experiences to eventually live on and to be able to facilitate the millions of concurrent players uh, that the metaverse envisions. So I think in a, in a nutshell, that's what the metaverse is, an interoperable, persistent, uh, synchronous uh, successor to the current internet. And in terms of what it is not, I think the most common misconception is that the metaverse is virtual reality. People think that when you put on a VR headset and you go into um, a world like VR chat, for example, that that's the metaverse. It's really not because in VRChat, you're maybe playing with a couple dozen people, max. Uh, there's latency. There's not interoperability. Uh, the worlds are 
uh, not synchronous. They're discrete standalone uh, worlds. And, uh, you know, that's what the metaverse is not. It, it, it is not a virtual world and it's not just a, a digital world either. The, the metaverse is going to span both the physical and the virtual world. So uh, even AR experiences, like some of the stuff that Nintendo, for example, is doing now, uh, will be something that you can envision seeing in the metaverse. I think that's a great point. And I think it's important to hit that home. You know, it's not just virtual worlds. If you look at Disney World in Los Angeles, where they have the Star Wars, you know, theme park, where they use Unity and other in real time 3D software to enhance the physical world. That is also the metaverse. You know, maybe Bob Iger doesn't realize that because he said that Disney Plus is is their metaverse. But the the metaverse isn't just a screen. It isn't just a device. It's it's anything that's enabled by real time 3D. And I think that's a really important point that you made. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of misconceptions of, over what the metaverse is, particularly when you hear private companies like Disney saying, "Oh, we're we're going to create our own metaverse." Like. I'm sure Disney World will be an awesome experience within the metaverse, but the metaverse won't just be, there won't be a Disney metaverse. And maybe we can talk a little bit about this down the line, but there's a lot of talk about what China's role in the metaverse is going to be. Uh, And I I would argue that um, China also cannot create their own metaverse. Uh, I think there needs to be global cooperation and the metaverse is going to be a single entity rather than a number of uh, disparate events. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely an interesting uh, topic to kind of unpack and highly disputed, of course, given the the parallel internet that China has created, kind of almost with a cyber wall. And I think that's going to definitely be interesting to look at as a, either later in this conversation or as a separate conversation. And Matt and I are definitely interested in unpacking the China angle when it comes to the metaverse. Um, but you know, going back to what are some of the things that constitute the metaverse as it emerges? You know, I think one of the things we we continuously discuss in these podcasts and in other opportunities is the fact that the metaverse is also, in a way, the next frontier of social and human experiences over the internet, manifested in these, you know, real-time 3D, large-scale environments. And, you know, as someone like yourself, uh, Mario, who has been playing Roblox for a long time and is also a gamer and you know, we think it makes sense to think of you, especially as a kind of core user of what emerged as a, a, a premier metaverse, consistent metaverse platform like Roblox. And so the next question we have for you is from your perspective as a user, but also as an analyst, how have these platforms evolved over time? And more importantly, what have been the key evolutions that elevate them to metaverse platform versus just gaming platforms and you can give a historic view of how they evolved over time and also take a stab at what's the next several years could look like for these platforms because you know there is a race to the moon between elon the race to mars between elon musk and bezos and then there's the race to the metaverse which i'm more i'm more interested in personally so what, what's your take on where we came from and where we're going with regards to you know these emerging platforms yeah i think the first things that could be thought of like proto-metaverse experiences were uh, MMORPGs. Uh, and I think having the internet get to a point in the late 90s and early 2000s where even a dozen people could interact with each other, not on land anymore, you know, o- over the actual internet was a very big evolutionary point 
uh, in the development of Web 2.0. And uh, you look at games like Second Life, for example, that game was really way ahead of its time because there was never a forum before where you could customize a digital avatar, um, hop into any number of worlds that you wanted um, and talk not only with your friends, but also with people you had never met before and forge friendships. I mean, there were even weddings in that game, right? And uh, also in terms of a thriving economy, digital parcels and and real estate on Second Life were were getting sold for tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, So I, I think Second Life did a very, very good job in defining some of the characteristics that uh, games going forward would need to kind of delve into this proto-metaverse state. Uh, and I think Roblox, when it came out in 2006, which is not super far off from when some of the first popular MMOs like World of Warcraft came out, I think that was 2004, uh, did a great job at defining uh, that vision, but it was still too early. Uh, I joined Roblox in 2007. Uh, I was, I think, one of the first 70,000 users and I even remember the platform hitting 100,000 users came like the subsequent year. So it was really, really slow. And levels were capped at 8 to 12 people. So not the type of uh, uncapped necessity that the, meta- that the metaverse needs. And uh, there was significant latency problems. Uh, but it did a really, really good job at implementing the building blocks that Roblox now um, uh, utilizes to compensate creators. I think the number this year is going to be over half a billion dollars. Like that wasn't even fathomable back in in the late 2000s. Levels for the most part were created by the admins and the moderators on the website. Some of the most popular levels that I remember were were made by the mods. Um, And now there's a full-fledged user-generated economy uh, that not only spans cosmetic items, but also spans levels themselves. Uh, you can even advertise your own level on Roblox now with Roblox, which I think is awesome. So it's really come a long way. And I'm excited by what I see with Roblox. I think the beta now, uh, 700 players can play concurrently. So it's really getting there. But at the end of the day, when you play on a level in in, in Roblox, your separate your server is separated from not only the other servers running that instance, but also from uh, other levels as well. So you can't just hop from uh, Adopt Me <laughs> to a sword fighting game. You need to physically leave and rejoin uh, with an entire entirely new group of people. And I think the interoperability aspect of the metaverse is going to be the most important thing to tackle, but whoever can do that successfully is going to open the door for a number of disjointed experiences to come together and create a full-fledged economy and a full-fledged social media platform as well. I think what you're saying resonates really well with what Craig Donato was talking about on our last episode, where he talked about, we would love to have this vision for an open, interoperable metaverse, but we need to build the technology first. And everything you're saying is totally aligned with that. You know, he said, we're still in the first inning. I don't even know if we're out of the top of the first yet. It might not even be the bottom of the first inning yet, you know? And so, um, you know, there's a long way to go to make these, you know, massive scale immersive experiences within a closed ecosystem before we can even think about opening those up. And I think that's a really important point for, for people to understand that, 
you know, there's a lot of hype about the metaverse today. Heck, we have a podcast about it. So, you know, that, that underscores the hype, but there's also, you know, a lot of development that needs to be done on the way to, to realize this vision. A hundred percent. I totally echo what both of you are saying. I just want to comment on one of the things that Mario mentioned for our audience, which is really interesting. I think the notion of we have had MMO or massive multiplayer online game environments for a while now, right? I'm sure a bunch of people here who are listening to this podcast have played League of Legends and World of Warcraft and, and a bunch of others. And so when we think about metaverse environments, it's not necessarily just by companies who have been building platforms per se from day one, like Roblox. Obviously, we know about efforts from other companies, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But I think it's also interesting to think about who are those massive MMOs that historically have been really, really large over the past 10, 15, 20 years that could also potentially build metaverse within their game ecosystems. Obviously, we know that Epic, to a large extent, think of Fortnite and uh, as, 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 as a game that is becoming, can become a platform and, and later on a metaverse. And I recall the tweet from Tim Sweeney, I think, a couple of years ago when someone asked him, is Fortnite a game? And he said, at the moment, it's a game, but ask me again in a year. And so, you know, I think I would not underestimate at all the world of Warcraft of the world, all of these MMOs that have emerged with still millions of users uh, looking at companies like Riot Games, if anyone thinks that Riot Games doesn't have internally a conversation about what does the metaverse mean for us, he's obviously not paying attention to what com- other companies are doing who come from the game side versus the platform like Roblox. So, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a super fascinating frontier at the moment. Yeah, and it's also very helpful that um, a lot of these games have now been out for 10, 15 plus years. I think we're entering uh this new environment where instead of titles being released cyclically, like annually or every other year, developers are sticking with the same title over a number of years, monetizing that game as a service and building layers on that game technologically um, to create, you know, an ever enhancing experience. You think about League of Legends, this game's been out since 2009. How many more players does it have now? How many more champions does it have now? Dota 2. Uh, the most, the highest prize pool esport in the world, and one of the most popular esports in the world, has been out since 2013. World of Warcraft has been out, like I said, since 2004. Y- these games have now been out for a significant amount of time, and even in terms of first-person shooters. So, for example, Call of Duty. You know, Call of Duty is launched annually, but Activision has found their most success with Warzone, which is a service-based title. Um, I, I, I think if developers um, are still clinging to launch windows, I think a lot of them are going to revisit that and start to launch these individual experiences that are constantly uh, updated as a service and are allowed to build into the next metaverse. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's really important that, you know, we think about you know, these, these gaming companies elevating their experiences and shifting their strategy. And, you know, I think that's a nice tie in to, to my next question that I wanted to dive in. And I wanted to give you, you know, a little bit of time to, to talk about the ETF and the index and all the success you guys are having, because 
you know, I can't seem to keep up with where the AUM is on a daily basis because I'm based in Hong Kong and every morning I wake up and I see you've added another hundred million dollars or so. And it's like, you know, it's absolutely bonkers how crazy things have been for you guys. And it's fantastic for you guys. But, you know, you know, if you just think about kind of some of the construction work that you did with Matt Ball and, and his his uh, council of experts that you've done to create the index and, you know, the refined strategy you really brought to creating it, because, as you define the metaverse, as we define the metaverse, it's the internet. So from a broad description, every company is a metaverse company because every company has a presence on the internet. So you've obviously took a much more refined approach. And so can you talk about, you know, when you constructed the index with them or how they did it and how you guys express it, you know, how did that strategy get refined? How did you narrow down to the companies that are in the fund? And, and how does that represent what you guys think are the leaders in the metaverse today? Yeah, so Matthew Bull has been working on this index since late 2020. And for reference, we launched uh, June 30th, 2021. So it's really been in the oven a while. And I think the key question that he was posed with was, if this index launched today, are there enough companies that could be defined as metaverse companies to, to really launch this index? Are companies yet deriving their revenue from metaverse sources? Uh, and 2021 has really showed us that companies are explicitly redefining their strategy to focus on the metaverse. And I think uh, Facebook's name, uh, change to meta platforms is the uh, number one endorsement of that, the seventh biggest company in the United States, uh, essentially becoming a metaverse company. But when we launched June 30th, we... Have the same methodology uh, that we have now, uh, and that is defining the metaverse in seven categories. And I'll go through them quickly. It's computing, so the companies enabling and supplying computing power to support the metaverse. Networking, companies that provide connections and bandwidth and data services to consumers. Virtual platforms, which are companies that uh, develop and operate immersive digital simulations and worlds. Uh, interchange standards, so the companies that creating the protocols and tools for the metaverse, uh, payments, uh, content assets and identity services, and hardware. Uh, so those seven categories are what we use to define the index. Uh, and within that, uh, Matthew Ball and his team assign a very large universe of companies. I think it's over a thousand companies uh, into one or more of these categories. And within those categories, companies receive a... Uh, a rating. So it's kind of this composite between how many categories are you in? What's your rating in those categories? And from there, you get the uh, composition of the index. And, you know, over time, I think the number of constituents in that index are going to narrow as the metaverse gets more and more refined. Uh, even launching in, in June, the index had 50 companies. Uh, and as of the last rebalance, which was a couple months ago, uh, the index now has, uh, I, I believe, 42 companies. So that's kind of where we're at and uh, how the index is constructed. And behind that, it's Matthew Ball and a team of uh, six individuals on his expert council who have a wide range of experience within the metaverse, um, individuals who have worked for Oculus, Facebook, uh, Valve, and AWS, to, to name a few. When we launched, we were pretty successful out of the gate. Matt can attest to this, but launching a new ETF uh, typically sees you start with low volume, uh, low inflows. 
even before Facebook's name change on October 28th, we had 150 million inflows into the fund. So for all intents and purposes, it was going well. But um, I think that announcement really supercharged interest in the metaverse. Um, people were looking for ways to get uh, exposure to the space. Uh, and the ETF really allows you to do that in a diversified manner, um, not doing security selection on individual companies, but rather this diversified basket of that contains companies that some or more uh, may become key uh, players in the metaverse. So since that point, we went from 150 million in assets to I think we're just over 800 now. Uh, it, it's hard to keep up on our end too because of both the volatility uh, as well as the inflows, which are the two components of AUM. But yeah, we've been really happy with the success that the fund has had. We're happy that our audience, which is almost exclusively retail, um, can appreciate uh, what we've done here. And uh, we think that we have the right fund to uh, allow investors to get exposure to this uh, emerging space. I feel bad for the eight companies that dropped, uh, that sadly have been dropped out of the index. Uh, good luck to them, as they say. And so, you know, picking up on, 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 on this point and the success and congratulations again to all of you for uh, really stellar growth over the past couple of months. Um, obviously it's been a crazy ride for Meta and, and over the last few weeks, starting with the rebrand of Facebook to become Meta platforms and then catalyzed by strong results across the board any metaverse player or metaverse related company, um, Roblox, Unity, et cetera, et cetera, all gave very strong quarterly reviews. And also there were announcements from Microsoft about their enterprise metaverse. And of course there is the juggernaut NVIDIA that is tracking closely towards a $1 trillion company, which <laughs> if you would ask anyone a couple of years ago, it would sound completely, completely unimaginable and so looking at all of these announcements and updates from some of these major companies, and we're seeing these crazy inflows into, into the, your ETF, what are these flows coming from? Where are these flows coming from? And what does it say about investor interest in the metaverse? Um, and, 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 and I think it would be great for our listeners to get your commentary, both from the retail investor perspective, but also the institutional one. Yeah, I think it's in terms of the retail and institutional quote unquote divide, I think in our case, it's actually very similar. So like I said, our strategy um, is primarily geared towards uh, retail investors. Uh, we have no outbound sales force, which is pretty rare for an ETF company. All of our thought leadership and research is disseminated either on our social media, mainly Twitter. We publish research on our website as well. Uh, and we have a newsletter that I think has just over 10,000 subscribers. Uh, so we have uh, a few outlets uh, with which to disseminate our stuff and institutions and retail are both looking at it alike. So it's really a level playing field, kind of in line with the spirit of the meta metaverse, we have kind of a, uh, an equal playing field uh, with our investor base. They're, they're both consuming the same content and you know, no one's really getting preferential treatment in terms of uh, who is is purchasing our fund or the uh, research that they're consuming. So I would say that the fund is probably 90% retail assets currently and 10% institutional. It might even be less, but these investors, 
are a lot of them are new to investing, especially post COVID. We've seen obviously a surge in the trading apps in, in the retail trading environment. And a lot of these people um, are becoming buy and hold investors kind of for the first time after uh, weaning themselves off meme stocks. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's yet to be seen if they'll really stick with us through our journey, but we've made it pretty clear that the metaverse is not something that's going to be realized overnight. It's going to be probably a decade or more until there is actually a metaverse in place. And maybe in the next five years, you'll start to see a lot more um, on the experiences front. But it's really the infrastructure and the technology that is the most significant hurdle. And uh, institutions appreciate that. And they'll probably be some of the stickiest assets that the fund has. But, you know, it's yet to be seen if retail will uh, weather uh, the various bumps in the road that we've had. I think that's an important point because, you know, we're building and launching our Bloomberg Metaverse Index and you guys have yours. And I know we're technically going to be competing, but, you know, I think it's good for the industry overall to have successful products. We've seen some others come out in other jurisdictions in Asia, particularly, but they don't necessarily, you know, to someone like me who's been studying the space, they don't look like pure metaverse. They kind of just look like diversified TMT baskets where they slap metaverse on it to ride the hype. And I think one of the things you're talking about, and one of the things that we've tried to talk about is building a sustainable product to your point that can ride these market cycles. I mean, Meta has been super successful. You guys have other funds that, you know, I'm looking at like MVP and some of the others, your sports one, right? They haven't done as well. Your bets ETF did do exceptionally well right out of the gate. But, you know, can you just talk about when you're when you're thinking about building these funds, when you're thinking about these long term themes, you do really need to build something that is sustainable for the long term, right? You can't just be thinking about a near term bump. Yeah. Having a rules based methodology um, that is rational and somewhat systematic is, is very important to make these products uh, scalable, especially when uh, working with a small team like we have. And Matt is kind of an endorsement um, for this new kind of model that we're trying out of partnering with thought leaders in uh, various uh, sectors of the industry and leveraging their expertise. So, you know, it's a uh, Definitely a new frontier. Uh, it's a lot different than my old role, which was at BlackRock and fixed income ETFs. I could have never imagined that, you know, equity ETFs would eventually uh, look like this. But I think the market is starting to get bifurcated. I, I know Eric Balchunas talks a lot about this, but on, on the one end, you have low cost beta in fixed income and equities um, that is indexed, rebalancing usually annually. Uh, and then on the other end, you have these types of thematic products that, uh, in a lot of ways, are almost active, uh, even if even if they do technically track an index that leverage uh, the expertise of people that really know what they're talking about. And I think Matt has proved himself as one of the foremost experts uh, within the metaverse. So we're really happy with the relationship we've built with him, and I think the methodology that he's put in place and the team he has in place will really allow this fund to scale definitely to a billion and beyond. It's uh, Before I let Yon ask another question, I'll just note my colleague, Rebecca Sin, who's our ETF analyst here in Asia. She put out a report 
just before Facebook did the name change to Meta. She talked about Metaverse ETFs getting $2 billion of assets by the end of 2021 and potentially $80 billion over the next several years. And everyone thought the number was really high. And then we look at the flows that have come into these ETFs lately and it's like, we could hit 80 billion next year, potentially <laughs> like, you know, we're, we already crossed 2 billion now, which was crazy to think about even two months ago. And at the rate that we're going, you know, who knows where this thing could go. And, and so it has been, you know, quite crazy. So Mario, one of the things we like to talk about this podcast, and, and, and obviously this is still a very much early, early, early stage, but the role of blockchain, crypto, decentralization, would love to get your very preliminary point of view on how does blockchain and crypto and decentralization play both into the wider metaverse evolution and what the metaverse actually mean for people, as well as what does it mean for the metaverse ETF? Sure. So I'll, I'll start with the ETF. And it's actually a very timely question because today our letter uh, requesting inclusion of cryptocurrency products uh, into the Metaverse ETF got published on the SEC's website. So I, I, I can't comment beyond much of what what is in the letter. But what I will say is uh, they're a very integral part uh, of the Metaverse. Uh, we requested Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, which you know are, are currently works in progress for us. But I think what the blockchain can do for the Metaverse is to create a secure decentralized environment that will set the standard for for transactions within the metaverse. So I think it primarily has an economic benefit. Since the metaverse is going to be synchronous and uh, users from every country will be able to collaborate simultaneously, um, there can't be traditional fees and there can't be the traditional uh, payments frictions that we currently have with the current system, with the current wire system, with current even credit cards, people have faced high fees and slow settlement times with traditional payments for decades. And for everything to be instantaneous, uh, we are going to need technology to facilitate instant payments. And that is going to come from the blockchain. I think the primary, an another benefit has to do with security. Since the blockchain is decentralized, each record is secured um, via its own cryptographic algorithm, and every participant on the blockchain needs to basically agree uh, to all the previous transactions for a new one to go through, unless you have a 51% attack, which is a story <laughs> for, for another podcast. But um, since the, that is the process for validating and legitimizing transactions, you're going to be able to facilitate mass commerce uh, via these consensus algorithms. One of the debates is, uh, will the metaverse have a public or a private blockchain, uh, i.e. with a private blockchain, um, a single organization has control over the network and can onboard uh, participants uh, as they please uh, to either view a history of the ledger or to be able to make transactions themselves or a public blockchain, which is something like Bitcoin. Um, where the entire public can view uh, what is going on. I, I think that's the most important thing that is going to govern uh, pay payments in the metaverse is either the adoption of a public or a private blockchain. And if it is private, 
Will it be one organization or a collective of organizations that control it? And I tend to favor the public uh, aspect of it because uh, if you're going to have a decentralized space, uh, a lot of that means shunning the current hierarchical models uh, that organizations uh, use uh, currently. Um, so I, I think that's from the standpoint of, of the metaverse as a whole. And then, like I said, for our fund, uh, we are actively exploring adding uh, cryptocurrency products into it because we we believe that uh, blockchain tech uh, is going to be pivotal to the metaverse. I totally agree. I think that there's a lot of applications of blockchain and NFTs that resonate with, you know, I, I like to think about it from the consumer perspective again, right? It, you know, the reason that consumers want to interact in these spaces is this concept of, you know, expressing yourself with your avatar, digital self-expression, as I like to call it, you know, the, the, the avatar economy, as Yon likes to call it, there's a lot of different ways to call this same thing. But in the real world, we express ourselves by wearing the clothes we're wearing, or in this case, I'm wearing, you know, a sweatshirt, you know, because I'm lazy today, but, you know, people carry fancy bags, they wear watches, et cetera, because they want to, you know, have these items express who they are um, and, you know, paint a picture of themselves. And in the virtual world with your avatar, you want to have the same ownership of your identity in the virtual space of your digital self. And, and I think that demand, there's lots of ways to express that and lots of technologies to make that decision happen. And to some extent for a lot of these platforms, it's a business decision and, and a technology decision. It's not a, you know, it's, it, it's not a religious decision. Like some people like to make out the application of these technologies to be, but you know, I, I, I think that there's a role that these technologies can absolutely play. You know, in our Bloomberg metaverse index, We've included Coinbase. Um, you know, we think Coinbase kind of will serve as, you know, the PayPal of a lot of these technologies, you know, enabling, you know, mass consumer adoption of, of, of payments uh, through blockchain and NFTs and cryptos. Um, and that's that's why Coinbase is included in our index. And, you know, I think you guys have a lot of payments exposure as well in your fund. And, you know, I think as, as, as the space develops, we'll see what other types of companies evolve. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations as well, Yon, and you said it in the first episode the companies that are going to dominate and lead the metaverse potentially don't exist today yet. You know, we look at companies like Roblox and Unity that are ahead of the pack today, but who knows what this space looks like in 10 years. When the internet was started, we didn't know what Facebook was. And here we are today. And and, and so, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a crazy ride and I'm excited for it. Yeah, you know, uh, Amazon was born, I think, uh, 1996, Google 1999, 2005, Facebook, right? Um, Instagram, WhatsApp came later, Snapchat came later. I think the what's incredible and promising to me about the metaverse is both as a user spectator, but also as a as a company builder in the space. I think what's most exciting is I believe the rate of change, the rate of innovation is going to continue and accelerate. And I think a lot of that is going to be because of these fundamental technologies, either decentralized or at the infrastructure level with what NVIDIA is doing or at the platform level. And I think... It's so refreshing to be building something new because think about these massive platforms like Epic, like Roblox um, and others like like Meta. Um, they now need to think about how they reinvent themselves or as they how they are going to evolve into this new era. In a way, it's much, quote unquote, simpler to just start fresh, start from scratch um, I would be kind of a bit provocative and say I'm sure to some extent Mark Zuckerberg 
had to think as if he's starting something from scratch to do the bold moves that he had to do because there's no other way to explain the rapid movement of a trillion dollar company almost. And even if it's less than a year of making this transformation of the company in defining itself as a metaverse company first and then calling itself meta, you know, obviously very admirable cadence of execution. But, and, and I go back to that point, um, Matthew, that you've mentioned. Yes, I, I believe a lot of the greatest and the biggest companies in the metaverse wider space 10, 15 years from now are either hasn't be, haven't been born yet or being born now. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to talk first about like the NFT side of things because we talked a little bit about it before the podcast too. And then on like the, the, the companies that uh, may become leaders of, in, of the metaverse. So, you know, in terms of NFTs, the divide between digital collectibles and NFTs is not super clear for a lot of people, but I think there is an important difference Digital collectibles have been out there um, since the 2000s. Uh, I mean, even web-based games like Neopets, uh, you could collect uh, d- different items and buy items for, for your avatar. And some of them were even unique to you. But it, that, that was never able to be done in a secure and uh, identity-based manner. Uh, and I think one of the things NFTs have done, um, <laughs> whether they're in a bubble or not, is allow people to attribute certain items to themselves and to provide a record uh, to everyone else that that item uh, is theirs uh, and you know what they had paid for it um, and a, a lot of that those other details in, in, in the metadata. The economy for digital collectibles like what Valve was doing with games like Team Fortress 2 or what they still are doing, games like TF2, uh, CSGO, uh, is massive. When they onboarded uh, their in-house economic minister, the former economic minister of Greece, it was already doing a billion uh, in turnover. And I think that was in 2013. So digital collectibles as a standalone have grown significantly. And when you apply some of the things that NFTs do, like unique identity, blockchain-based uh, transactions, the market as collectibles are mapped to NFTs, is going to be massive. And I think that's where the real opportunity lies. Uh, And what they also allow you to do is tackle that interoperability uh, protocol of the the metaverse. Uh, If you own skin in Fortnite, you can't bring it to your character in, you know, an MMO, for example. But NFTs will allow you to do that. It'll be a single item that has functionality in multiple different uh, experiences. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to see if companies emerge that tackle that solely, or if that's the domain of uh, FANG and tech giants uh, that, that try to take a stab at that interoperability standpoint. And I think that's a good segue to the second point of what Jan was making uh, of a lot of companies that that will create the metaverse not currently existing yet. I think there's a couple ways to look at this. Uh, one is the largest companies have the capital to deploy um, to build the metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg said in no uncertain terms that operating uh, expenses will increase throughout the whole decades, uh, starting at $10 billion uh, in the current year, explicitly for metaverse investments. And that kind of irked some investors uh, initially, but I think people have really come around to his vision 
and the amount of money that Facebook is going to be able to throw at this, almost every large tech company, really Apple, Google, Microsoft, has announced some form of metaverse strategy. But then on the other side of the coin, you have nimble organizations. And you know, I want to give a shout out to uh, Jan SuperSocial um, that are kind of coming out of nowhere and uh, are building the experiences for the metaverse. You know, they might not be able to build uh, the interchange stand standards and the piping that the metaverse will need, but they can definitely try to tackle that experience layer, which again is going to be both the outermost and the largest layer of the metaverse. So I mean, that's really, really important. I know, I know we'll make it when we're going to be on the metaverse ETF. Boom. <laughs> Yeah, no, that'll be uh, I, that'll be uh, an awesome day for 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 both of us. Uh, but you know, this experience layer is is something that can either be tackled uh, by very large organizations, by small teams, again like Super Social, or by even individuals. Um, some of the top levels on Roblox alone are created by single people who do the coding, the design, kind of everything by themselves, uh, and. I think that is the part that is going to level the playing field and have normal people competing with the lar largest organizations uh, in terms of shelf, shelf space uh, on that experience layer. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. Um, you know, and as, as we're getting close to, you know, wrapping up here, I, I did want to just give you one last chance to, you know, support some of the things you're working on. You mentioned the, the crypto filings you have, so we won't ask any more questions there because that's pretty much all you can say, but anything else in the works at Roundhill that our listeners should be watching out for? I think you guys are sitting on the ticker weed also, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're sitting on that ticker. Um, there's a number of regulatory problems. Um, a lot of them uh, public, for example, banks refusing to custody those assets, uh, even though there's almost at this point bipartisan agreement that some bill is going to pass. So we're, we're cautiously optimistic there. Um, but we also have the ticker meme and We'll be launching a meme stock ETF in the next few weeks. Uh, that ETF is going to be pretty interesting because um, unlike some current existing products, it's not only going to be based on sentiment, but we're also going to have a short interest overlay. So trying uh, not only to target uh, names that are being talked about on some of these forums, but also those that have high short interest and high potential to be squeezed and be even talked about more. Uh, and we'll be rebalancing that fund biweekly uh, to capture that opportunity. And longer term, we also have a couple other funds in the hopper, uh, namely a digital payments ETF and an e-commerce ETF. Onwards and upwards for Roundhill. Congrats to you and the team. You know, I know Will and Tim will probably listen to this and, you know, they're awesome guys. I remember when it was just, you know, the two of them and your team has grown, you know, quite substantially in the last couple of years with all these successful funds. So it's, it's really good to see. I still have my nerd. I still have my nerd hat from, from the NICE when we did the, the bell ringing ceremony. That was the day before I got on the plane and moved to Hong Kong. <laughs> I, Mario, Mario, I have a, I have a pitch. You guys can think about it. My pitch is a avatar ETF. Basically, any companies that is building the future of direct to avatars could be uh, accessories, items, fashion brands, sports. I think it's the next, you know, big frontier of human expression is going to be avatars in virtual worlds. I'm calling here for an avatar ETF. I'm down to talk about it. No, I believe me. We're looking at an NFT. Uh, projects uh, pretty actively. 
Um, but really quick, the last thing I want to just touch on, Jan, thank you so much for mentioning it, but avatars, uh, Jensen Wang uh, in NVIDIA's last uh, earnings mentioned almost the entire call was on NVIDIA's software side. So the Omniverse and their avatars. And I think five years ago, no one could imagine that the software side for NVIDIA was going to be just as important as their hardware side between data center and gaming GPUs. Um, But these avatars, at least according to Jensen, uh, in five years will be present everywhere. Airports, retail stores, coffee shops, kind of everywhere where you can imagine. And they'll be able to have a customizable identity and they'll be able to do a lot of tasks uh, that will help facilitate brick and mortar commerce greatly. And that's the one of the key parts where we say that the metaverse will bridge both the physical and the virtual worlds is stuff like that, uh, whether it's an alternate reality or whether this is um, an avatar that is you know physically constructed. That's one of the most exciting opportunities. And that's a large part of the reason why NVIDIA has such a high weighting uh, in the index and the fund. That's awesome. And, you know, it's uh, it, the metaverse is no virtual reality. It's emerging. It's it's burgeoning today. As we've said, it'll take time. But this has been an awesome discussion. It's been great having you on. That's Mario Stefanitis, the VP of Research from Roundhill. And this has been another awesome episode of Into the Metaverse. Mm-hmm.